All right. Again, I want to remind you that our schedule is messed up if you're following this quarterly schedule. Uh, we're one week behind on this because we combined two two weeks um, together last week. So today we're focusing on the top of discipling people who are hurting. And uh, so we'll talk about that here in just a second. But let me begin with a word of prayer and ask God's help uh, as we begin today. Father, thankful for the truth of your word and thankful for the opportunity for us to love it and to live it as we've just sung. Uh, We recognize the value of following your word and obeying your word, and we also recognize the great danger of ignoring it. And we pray that you would help us to love it more today. And we're thankful that Christ came and satisfied all the demands of the Mosaic Law and and satisfied the wrath that should have come upon us because of our sin. And because we believe in Him, we no longer have to fear that wrath. And now we can uh, have a tendency toward righteousness rather than toward sin. And so we pray that You would make us more holy this morning. Uh, help us to know Your will more clearly. And help us to be able to look out for the needs of others and to be able to help them along the way in this life that is a struggle against uh, flesh and also against the spiritual warfare that's going on in heavenly places. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, picture these situations. A close friend calls and um, his wife has just died in a tragic car accident or a church member just gets fired from their job or a young wife suffers from a chronic pain that that affects everything that she does, or or, uh, a lady comes to your door in tears and tells you that her husband has just packed up and said that he is going to leave her. How do you respond to these situations? What do you do? What do you say? What do you, uh, how do you pray for them? Where do you go in Scripture to find help? How do you bring comfort We live in a fallen world that is not exempt from pain, difficulty, and suffering. And in order to be a good discipler, it's important to think through how to minister to those who are hurting. And so that's what we want to do today. And and our study is not going to be comprehensive. There was a whole series that we did on counseling, and we talked about uh, some of those things, including uh, depression and some other things. Um but I want to just use this as an introduction to to help those who are suffering. And so we could think of it, think of it as what theologians call a, a theology of suffering. How do we think about suffering from a biblical perspective? We took the whole sweep of Scripture. What does the Bible have to say about Scripture? How does our view of suffering shape our faith? Um are any of the thoughts that we currently espouse to uh, unbiblical? Are we buying into the ideas of uh, and responses to suffering that the world puts out there? And and how do we help other people who are suffering? How do our views of suffering help other people who who are suffering? For most people, uh, a general rule of thumb is to seek pleasure in life and to avoid pain at all costs and including Christians, that that our uh, t- 
tendency is to to avoid pain and to um, and to seek pleasure. And yet we find in Scripture that God uses suffering as a means to help us draw closer to Him and to bring Him great glory. Listen to what John Piper wrote in the article uh, from 2003. He says, We must talk so as to make suffering seem normal and purposeful and not surprising in this fallen age. So, talking about in a Christian context, we need to talk about suffering in that way, that it's normal and purposeful, that suffering does come. The forces of American culture are almost all designed to build the opposite worldview into our minds. That we should maximize comfort, that we should maximize ease, and maximize security. That we should avoid all choices that might bring about discomfort, trouble, difficulty, pain, or suffering. And this cultural force to our natural desire, uh, I'm sorry, add add to this cultural force to our natural desire uh, for more immediate gratification and fleeting pleasures. So, in addition to our culture pulling us toward the idea of that suffering's bad and we need to get away from it, add to that our natural inclination towards gratification for the things that are passing away, and those two combined powers undermine the superior satisfaction of our soul in the glory of God through suffering. In other words, it's hard for us to take satisfaction in suffering when we are so pulled by the world away from that idea and when our natural inclinations are also pushing us in that direction. We we can't see clearly that suffering could actually be a good thing. So, let's think today what the Bible has to say about suffering. All right, number one, the Bible is realistic and honest about suffering in a fallen world. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And because this is a theology of suffering, an introduction to a theology of suffering, we're going to be looking at a lot of text and they're going to cover a broad scope of the Scriptures. So God made everything that was good and then He made woman and then everything was very good. Okay, There's some good truth in there, ladies and men. Um, Everything was very good after woman was made and then sin came into the world. Okay, And death through sin. And here we have the curse that comes on the earth because of the sin that Adam committed. And here we have um, in verse... Um, first, he speaks to the, the serpent in verse 14, and then to the woman in verse 16. He says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, and yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The idea is there that her desire will be to master him, to rule over him. And yet, he will rule over You is what God says to the woman. And then to Adam He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here... God says, listen, because of your sin, there's, there's going to be suffering. 
There's going to be trouble. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be death. He says you came from dust, but now you're going back to the dust, uh, which was not the case before their sin. Uh, there are uh, a few other passages here. Second Peter 3 says that the, the world is, is turning away from God and they, they ignore the judgment that's coming upon the world. You know, we could go to Genesis 6. It talks about the great sin that's taking place throughout the entire world besides Noah and his family. And so what we learn here is that the Bible is realistic and honest about suffering. It doesn't hide it. doesn't give us rosy colored glasses to say, well, you know, it, it, it looks bad, but it's, it's all okay. We just uh, kind of live in a Pollyannic type of society where we just kind of pretend like everything's okay when it's not. That's not what the Scriptures do, and we shouldn't do that either when we're helping other people or thinking about ourselves. Secondly, God is totally sovereign and totally good. God is totally sovereign and God is totally good. We know from Scripture this is true, though it's difficult in our intellect to to uh, to think about this at times. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 18. Isaiah 40 is about the restoration of all things, that God is going to reverse the curse that's on the earth and bring about uh, the the proper agriculture and and um, peace that that he had intended from the beginning. Um, Luke 18 here, Jesus is Jesus is um, approached by the rich young ruler, and he says in verse 18, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus replied to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." We saw this here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually last week, in the Sunday evening service, that the point there is Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. He's just saying, but why do you call me that? Because when we think about it from Scripture's perspective, God is the good one. God is the the omnibenevolent God. He is all good. Um, and so, in that case, He's pointing to God's goodness and He's trying to, to get into the heart of the rich young ruler and say, why are you calling me what people would say of God. And so for us, it's difficult to to think about this, though. I mean, if God is really good, haven't you have had people talk to you about that? Maybe people don't believe in God or believe in another religion. Um, why does a good God let bad things happen to good people? And when we think about that, our feelings signal to us how much is going on with regard to hurt in the world, and then it can consequently lead to our doubting of God's goodness. We can we can agree with those wrong condemnatory questions that are coming into our minds about God. We can say, how can a good God, if He's really good, how could He allow this to happen? And we say, well, then God can't be good if these things are happening. And yet, what the Scriptures teach is that God is good and that while while people mean it for evil, God means it for good. And at the same time, God is sovereign. Okay, so, Because we could have a good God that's not sovereign. We could have a good God who's weak. And by the way, that's the way a lot of churches teach about our God. They teach that He is a good God. He's God is love. And yes, He is. But, you know, He, he really didn't know what was happening when that plane crashed. I'm really sorry about that. And but he's here. He's there for you now, but he, he he just didn't have any control over that happening or that tsunami or that 
flood or, or that catastrophe, whatever it was, God couldn't help uh, what, what actually happened there. And that is certainly not the case because the Bible teaches us that God is in control of every single thing. So that means that God is both good and He's in control. He's good and sovereign. And that's a, a reality that we need to grasp. Rather than denying God, we need to cry out to God. Rather than denying that He's good or denying that He's in control, we need to call out to Him like the psalmist did. God, how can you, how can the, these things be happening? And and it, it leads us to depend on Him. Crying out to God is a way of acknowledging His sovereignty and His goodness, even in the midst of confusion and pain. And that's where people tend to turn, even unbelievers tend to look for answers in the God that they know exists. And the ultimate evidence that God is both in control and or, or that He is in control and that He is good is the cross. You think about it, God planned the cross. Right? It wasn't an accident, he wasn't reacting, he didn't he wasn't surprised by it. We know that he planned it because he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That is, that God had planned it before then. Isaiah 53 talks about the fact that this Messiah would suffer. Okay, so and that God was pleased to crush him. Well, it hadn't happened in Isaiah 53 when that was written, right? When that was prophesied. And yet, at the same time, at the cross, not only we see that God planned that what would happen, but God also was good in that, right? That He brought about the salvation of many who would trust in in Christ. Um, so God is totally sovereign and totally good. So the Bible's realistic about it, and it teaches that God is totally sovereign and totally good. Thirdly, that man is sinful and man is responsible for his own actions. Now, when we think about the planning of evil, we could say, well, if God is sovereign over all things, if God is in control, if He knows what's going to happen and He he has planned all those things, and those things all would be true. God has planned everything that would ever happen in this universe. Nothing is outside of His control. He's not reacting in any way. Then the next logical thought we may have is, well, then He must have, He must be responsible for sin. He must be the author of sin. And yet the Bible never talks about God in that way. Instead, man is the author of sin. Man, uh, Satan is the author of sin, the father of lies. But sin is is comes down to our own responsibility. God's not finally responsible for our sins. You know, when we stand before God, uh, when when any person stands before God, they're not going to be able to say, "Well, you know, I did sin, but but ultimately, you could have stopped me, right? You you could have stopped me from doing that." And we would say, "Yes, that's true. God could have stopped you." But the truth is, the Scriptures doesn't say why God didn't stop us, but what it does tell us is that we are responsible for our own sins and that we will be judged for our sins. We will be, um, particularly if we're not in Christ. Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Uh, That's 6.23. Romans 3.23 is that all have sinned and come and have come short of the glory of God. God has a standard by which He expects us to to obey Him, and we fall short of that in our sin. And so, to say that 
sin comes from God and that it's not our problem, we're not responsible for it ultimately, is to to speak against the holy God of the universe. What the Bible teaches is that uh, God is in control of all things. God is good, and yet God is not responsible, finally, for sin. Man is responsible for sin. Let me just uh, show you that because maybe maybe it's a little bit of a difficult concept to grasp. Turn to Acts chapter um, Acts chapter two. It's both. There's two passages that talk about talk about Acts two and Acts four. Acts 2 here will be helpful. Here's Peter talking to the Jews, and they don't quite get get it that they are the ones who crucified the Messiah. He wants them to see that that while God planned what would happen, they are responsible for their sins. Look at verse 22, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So in other words, Jesus, the man that you know, the carpenter, he was attested by signs, meaning he was verified as the genuine Messiah. Because who was it that would be able to give sight to the blind? Who was it that was going to make the lame walk? Who was it that fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures? You know that. You saw him. Okay, that's that's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, so stop there. Is what Peter's saying accurate? Is what he's saying is true? Was Jesus planned? Was He predetermined to be handed over to the Romans and to be killed? Yes, he's saying God is sovereign. But notice the next line. This man that was delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Okay, so yes, God is sovereign. He planned that death, but do you know whose blood Jesus' hands is on? Not God's. Okay, it's it's on their hands because they were responsible for his death. Turn over to chapter 4 and I'll show you this other passage that shows something very similar. Chapter 4, verse 27, again talking about Christ and his death. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose pre- predestined to occur. Okay, so people are gathered up against the holy servant Jesus, whom God had anointed, but who was responsible for it? Herod? Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the Jews. All those people are responsible for the death of Christ. And yet, verse 28 says, that's that's man's responsibility. Verse 28 says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to, to occur. God had planned it, didn't He? It wasn't a surprise. And so what we see in this is that, yes, God has planned all the events down to the minutest details of life. He's planned them all but He's not responsible for them. He stands behind all the good that happens in life and He takes full responsibility for all the good, but but as God, as a holy God, He stands behind the evil as having planned it, but not responsible for it. That's how the Scriptures paint those two pictures for us. And 
as hard as that is for us to grasp, to say, well, how can God not be responsible for those things if He's planned both the good and the evil? Uh, we can't ultimately answer those questions. We simply have to fall on the mercy of what the Scriptures teach. Number four. We'll get questions here in just a second. God uses everything for His good purposes. Turn to Romans 8.28. An often misquoted and misunderstood text. um, One that's very familiar, but often misunderstood. Because we like to think that God causes all things to work together for good, but that's not what the text says. Okay, it says more than that. It's qualified there. Okay, so God doesn't work together for the good of Satan. Okay, God doesn't work together for the good of those who will oppose Him and be and and exist in hell for all of eternity. Notice what the text says, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. We live in a world where there is suffering and hurt and real difficulties, and even we experience the consequences of our own sin. And yet, Scripture tells us that God uses everything, including our foolish decisions and their consequences, for His good purposes. Genesis 50:20 is the other passage that's listed there for you, and that is where... Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil. Did he say this? But God changed it into good. You meant it for evil, but God what? Meant it for good. So, you meant it to be an evil act, but God at the same time was planning, long before you had planned that, He had planned that it would be a good circumstance. And what did it ultimately accomplish? Okay, the salvation of many people, the rescue, okay, don't think spiritual salvation necessarily, but the rescue of many people because Joseph was made second in command in all of Egypt. Next, God is good even through difficult circumstances. Difficult circumstances are not pleasant. We don't wish them on. Okay, I started out by saying, you know, we, we are drawn to the world to a, a life of ease and our natural inclinations push us in that direction as well. And so we might think, well, we should push ourselves towards suffering. No, that's not what I'm saying is that we should want suffering or that but we should expect suffering and we should be ready for it. That's that's my point. Pain is real and not enjoyable. We don't wish it on ourselves or anyone. But often we interpret suffering as punishment from God. And yet scriptures the scriptures teach that God doesn't punish his children. Hey, we talked about this on Wednesday night, but there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Anyone want to try to explain the difference, punishment and discipline? Okay, so so punishment is more retributive, right? It's retribution. This is you're going to pay for what you did. And the opposite is corrective, right? It is, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of hurt, okay? Taking away some privilege that you have, or in the case of, you know, for for parents with their children, um, 
using the rod of correction. It is to actually shape them into something better. It's not to punish them for what they've done. You need to feel what I've felt now. Okay, God doesn't do that to us. All the punishment that we deserved for our sin has been paid for on the cross by Christ. We can't add any more punishment to it. God's not trying to, you know, I have a little bit more wrath that's left in my cup and I need to pour it out on somebody. No, it's all poured out on Christ at the cross. And what's left for us is nothing. There's no more punishment. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this suffering that that God brings into our lives is always a means of correction. It's a means of correction. Now, sometimes suffering comes in. Um, the suffering that God brings in in order to correct us is always correction. Sometimes suffering comes into our lives just because of the nature of life or um, because of some other reason for God to display His greatness. But when He, he is seeking to correct us, uh, suffering is a good thing. It's a harvest of righteousness and peace that God is looking for. That's what Hebrews 12 talks about. That, that's the loving Father. He's not looking to punish and, and, um, and um, make you remember your sins. That's not the goal. He wants, he wants to see correction change. So, how do we respond to suffering as Christians? We should turn to God and not away from Him. When we go through suffering, we ask all sorts of questions. What do we do to make things better? Why is this happening? And yet the most fundamental question that a person can ask during suffering is, who do we turn to? Right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of the heaven and the earth. We must turn to God and trust in His sovereign goodness even when we don't understand, especially when we don't understand. Any questions? the Bible says, I know we kind of plunged in a little deeper than you might have been expecting this morning, but any questions on any of that? Comments? Alright, so what are God's purposes in suffering? In a world uh, that typically lives for pleasure and seeks to avoid pain, Christians might, must fight the, the tendency to avoid suffering. Okay, Sometimes we're always looking for the exit ramp. Okay, How can I get out of the suffering? And yet, Instead, we need to see, is God doing something in this suffering? Is there something that, that, that I can learn from this? Is there something that would be good for me to actually go all the way through this? Um, and we can understand a few of these reasons from the Scriptures. First, suffering. suffering gives us an opportunity to stand out as Christians in a world that does not honor God. To stand out as Christians in a world that does not honor God. We should count it a privilege to suffer as a Christian. There should be no shame in it. Like, ooh, man, you know, I know, I know, I believe in a God that's good, and I've been telling you that God's good, but now I'm suffering because my family member is going through cancer, or my family member is going through this really difficult time, and I don't know how to explain that for my God. We shouldn't fear that sort of thing. Instead, First Peter four sixteen says, "If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name." Secondly. Suffering teaches us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Suffering often peels back the layers uh, that, that make up the superficial nature of our lives until we get to the core and we find out all the ugliness of our own sin. Suffering helps us to see 
that that um, we have not been trusting God as we ought to. We have not been relying on Him in prayer. We have not been looking to His Word for His answers. We have been self-dependent. We have been self-reliant. And now in suffering, we're left with with uh, very few other things to do other than to turn God and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. And so I need to depend on You. 2 Corinthians 1.8.9, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. This happened that we might rely on ourselves, but not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Don't, don't think that this was some kind of punishment that God was bringing on us. Okay? Instead, it's a way for God to, to remove the grip that we have on our own self-righteousness and, and to put it on God. And so suffering is good in that way and it teaches us to rely on God. It teaches us God's decrees. Psalm 119.71 says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Has that ever happened to you in the midst of suffering that God taught you something that you hadn't seen before about His mercy, about His long-suffering, about His character? Uh, The psalmist recognized that as well. It was actually a good thing me to be afflicted, he says, so I might learn your decrees. Fourthly, it matures us into godly people. We could think of suffering like a refining fire, that God is using this fire that's constantly pulling out all the dross, removing the dross. James says it this way, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Suffering matures you as a believer and that is certainly a worthwhile thing. Sometimes in ways that we can't be matured outside of suffering. Uh, next, suffering, suffering um, it, um, it makes us like our Savior, or it helps us to share. Oh, that, that's actually the next one. This one is the Savior receives glory through our suffering. It, it helps us to glorify our Savior, right? If the Master has suffered, why should the the servants not suffer as well? If He was persecuted, then why would we not also be persecuted? The Savior receives glory through our suffering. He says, in, uh, Peter says in First Peter four thirteen, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So. James is saying there's joy in suffering. Peter's saying there's future joy because of suffering. And we go through suffering and think there's no joy in this. There's no... Okay, it's not fun. Okay, again, not, don't go to the Pollyannic side and think, oh, well, this isn't bad. We, we enjoy this. It's not really here. We're just, we'll just pretend like it doesn't exist. But instead, we recognize that we can actually have genuine joy in the midst of, of suffering, real suffering. And it allows us to share in Christ's glory. If we are children, Romans 8.17 says, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And we would say, yes, we are heirs with Christ. We want to join and and, and take all the spoils that come with being uh, a co-heir with Christ. right? A a sibling of Christ. But do you know what kind of uh, co-heirs we are with Christ? Not only with the glory that's going to come, but Paul says, if indeed we share in His sufferings. So it's both suffering and glory. With Christ, it was not glory and then just glory for all of eternity for Him. It was 
suffering first, right? When in eternity past, He was enjoying the glory of the triune God, but, but then He came to the earth and He experienced real suffering. And then the suffering led to His future glory, His current and future glory that He experiences now and will forever. And we, the same way, will have to suffer before we can enjoy that glory. God allows suffering, and yet um, we have to recognize that pain can be meaningless. We can go through suffering and not accomplish anything through it, uh, or we can see our suffering as a meaningful thing. God in His mercy uses our suffering to bring about change in us and in people around us and bring glory to His Son. And so really it is our privilege and joy to take part in suffering since God does receive glory through it. Alright, any questions on that? Alright, we need to move quickly on how to help other people. And there are uh, a couple ways that we can. First, before suffering comes. Okay, this is actually the best time to help people think about suffering, not in the middle of the crisis. Now, if that's when you're, you know, where they're at right now, then don't give up on them or say, "Well, I can't help you." But, but the best time is before they suffer, so that they can think about the theology of suffering when times are good, when they're not going through the suffering. So take some time to talk about suffering with the person that you're discipling. Uh, if we only talk about all the good things that come in the Christian life and say, well, you know, you're, you're never going to have to deal with any of these other things. And if you do, it's probably because of your own sin. Well, then we're not being honest with them. We're not teaching them carefully about what the Scriptures are going to, uh, what the Scriptures teach. And help them to recognize that suffering is not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. It's going to come. It's going to come, especially as a Christian, it's going to come. People will reject you for, because of Christ. People will... Uh, slander you because of Christ. Expect it to happen. Okay, but um, but help them to be ready for it. Help them to deconstruct uh, worldly assumptions about suffering. Help them to disentangle the worldly assumptions about suffering. Uh, we mentioned earlier how people assume that suffering is a bad thing. Help them to realize that this is contrary to Scripture. Suffering is actually a normal part of the Christian life. Yes, it's it's not desired, but it is something that God has permitted and planned for us to to be changed in the image of His Son. Study God's purposes for suffering. We did a brief study here this morning, just kind of walked through several purposes for it, and um, help help that person that you're discipling to see how the Bible speaks about their sufferings. Build the relationship before the suffering comes. Okay. You see somebody in their suffering, you want to help them, and it's like you you haven't laid all the groundwork of developing a relationship, and you know they're they're not going to want to open up to you at that point. So take some time to uh, to develop a relationship before the suffering comes. Focus on uh, faith. Focus on faith. Remind them that troubles will come, and that they should prepare to respond to them in faith. That that Christians respond to suffering in faith. Read through Hebrews eleven and see that. You know, that that believers are those who recognize that while this is not uh, a perfect situation, now this is not a desired situation, 
um, we're going to, to believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, even and especially in suffering. Help to build a foundation on the goodness and sovereignty of God. We talked about that earlier. Um, when people struggle with suffering and why it's happening and all those kind of questions, a lot of times it's because they're doubting. One of those two things I talked about earlier, they're either doubting that God is good, okay, that God's an all-powerful God, but He's not a very good God. He doesn't really love His children. Or they're doubting God's control, that He's a really good God. He really loves people, but He can't help it. He just can't help these bad situations that keep coming, and He just tries to fix them up after the fact. They're, they're doubting one of those two things when they question uh, God's character, and so you need to help them to see God's sovereignty and God's goodness in the Scripture, and that will help uh, prepare them for the suffering before the suffering comes. When they are confident, when you are confident that God is both good and sovereign before the suffering comes, you're going to be less likely to doubt Him when the suffering comes, and they will be as well. So help them to see those things. You know, show them in the Scriptures where those are are clear. Teach them to meditate on the gospel. Before suffering comes, build the habit of regular, regularly turning and meditating on the truths of, God, of the gospel. Help them to remember that you know even Christ suffered. He suffered in the greatest way of taking it, our sins upon Himself. And so if, if He was willing to do that, then certainly God can accomplish, and if God can accomplish good from that, then certainly God can accomplish good through us. All right, so that's before it happens. And then when suffering comes, we can help other people when suffering comes. Again, it's good to have this foundation, but um, and hopefully you have had it. And when, that hap- when the suffering actually comes, how do you help someone? Well, first, as a member of this church, accept your responsibility to partake in their suffering. Here's what our covenant says. Uh, our church covenant says, We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid, to help each other in sickness and distress, and to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech. By becoming a member and by being committed to this church, you have accepted the responsibility to watch over the souls of other people and to care for them, to help them when they're weak. And... You know, we might think, well, we'll just leave that to the paid professionals. You know, the the pastor, we'll leave it to uh, deacons. They're not paid very much, just a little bit. Uh, no, they're not paid at all. But but we'll leave it to those guys, and you know, they can handle all the people that are, you know, all the trouble, the Christian sympathy that that needs to happen in the church. And yet, the Bible talks about, Paul talks about that ev- when one part suffers, suffers, the pastor and deacons also suffer with. Is that what it says? No, when one part suffers, every person does. Now, it doesn't mean you know exactly what they're going through, that you can literally feel their pain, but it does mean that each of us, when someone else is experiencing some kind of difficulty, should feel that with them and should show concern for them. So, recognize your responsibility there. Be present with them in suffering. Don't let someone go through suffering alone. You don't know what kind of off-ramp that they're looking for you know, in the Christian life. Maybe this is the one. And if you leave them alone in their suffering and don't encourage them and encourage those who are discouraged and help those who are weak, then um, 
you know, who knows what will will come of them. Certainly, Job's friends were. Uh, we, we could give them much rebuke and um, condemnation for the way that they treated Job in his trial. But one thing we can say that they did well was that they came and they sat with him. Job 2:13 says that no one said to him a word because they saw how great his suffering was. And if you've been in the midst of something very difficult, you know sometimes it's not that someone has you know, the perfect words to say to you at that time, but it's just that they're there with you. And they're, they're grieving with you in your suffering, whether that be the loss of a family member or you know, struggling with the, the difficulty of a sin, that, that you know that person cares for you. And, and, uh, and so that's the, what we need to do when people are going through suffering as well. Just be present. With them, don't think you know. I'm not not the best spokesperson. I don't know exactly what to say. If you think about the times that you most deeply suffered, you probably don't remember the exact words that people gave to you, but you do remember who was there. And um, so be be present. Be an ambassador of comfort. I wish we had time to go to Second Corinthians one three and four. This is just shows you how God comforts you in your sorrows, and the way that He does it is through other people. And so what the command is is since you've been comforted by God in your sorrows. Use that comfort and that knowledge of how God has comforted you to comfort other people. So, do you learn from how you've been comforted, and then you go on and comfort other people? Be be God's ambassador. You know, God doesn't reach down there as spirit and kind of grab their shoulders or 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 give them a hug. God doesn't do that, but He does do that through means through people like you and me who know these people and are committed to them. Make sacrifices for others. Um, be willing to carry their load. You know they're they're going through something that they can't bear right now, and they need someone else to carry their load for them, help carry their load for them. So, whatever kind of suffering it is, think about how you can help that struggling person. Um, certainly, you know we, especially when people are dealing with the consequences of their own sin, we might have lots of things to instruct them about. But make sure your primary focus during suffering is comfort, not instruction. Okay, That doesn't mean you don't instruct during suffering. Okay, There may be some times for that, for instructing and while someone's suffering. But the main focus ought to be comfort. Okay, um, Be there for them. Galatians uh, 6, again, talks about bearing, bearing their load with them. Reaffirm God's character. Again, you know, they're struggling with the idea between God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Help them to know that God is good. He's merciful. You know, I don't have the reason why your son is dying from cancer. I don't know why your your husband is leaving you. You know, I don't know why you lost your God, but or, or why you lost your job, but what I do know is that God cares. Okay, I do know that God is in control of all these things. And um so I can't answer all your questions for you, but I know that God um, cares. Don't try to explain what you don't know. Okay, this kind of goes along with the last one. And they're asking all these questions about why. Don't feel like you have to answer all their questions. You know, why does God allow suffering? Why does... Well, you know, um, just remind them of the, the gospel and, and the value of Christ's suffering for us. Truth is truth is, and sin is sin. In the midst of a crisis... Um, the black and white of truth and sin can sometimes be gray. People can start to reconstruct the theology of suffering in the midst of crisis. And when that happens, make sure that you 
you know, if they're speaking something that's completely false, you might want to challenge them on that there. Don't allow them to 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 get bitter over something that's not true. Um, pray with them and for them. Okay? Um Say, listen, let's let's talk to God about this, and let, I want you to know that I'm going to be praying with you this week. As you're praying to God, I also will be praying to God. Think practically how to serve them. Okay, think about if I was in this situation, what kind of needs would I have? Okay, whether it be a meal or a, a card or a phone call, an email, you know, a, a scripture reference. What kind of things? Would you need in that kind of circumstance and then use that to to help them? And then don't be scared to ask for outside help. Again, some of these things are just deeper than we can handle and don't feel like you have to do it all alone. You have a, a body of believers who love that person as well. And so uh, that would be a great way to show God's love to them and to fulfill your responsibility. All right. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for uh, those who have helped us in the midst of suffering. Lord, I can think of specific people who who were there for me, um, believers of my church, um, believers in my family, um, specific passages of Scripture that that comforted me during those times. And Lord, I want to be a help to other people in their suffering, no matter what kind it is. And so I pray that You would help me Equip me for that and give me the the love and concern for each of these people in our church. And and do the same for, for each person here as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.